All right, welcome back to Healthspan. Today, I'll be covering just a few parts of The Future of Nutrition by Dr. Campbell. I couldn't get through this book entirely because to me, this book was very dry, not that interesting, and pushed a lot of vegan propaganda. And I should have known this knowing that Dr. Campbell was the author of the China study. But this book sort of fell into my lap, so I just decided to cover it. So I'll be discussing a few things in this episode. First, I'll be discussing the current state of nutrition. Secondly, I'll be discussing the whole food, plant-based diet. I'll next be discussing the cult of animal protein and the ways we kind of assign value to certain foods we eat. I'm next going to be discussing Dr. Campbell's kind of run-in with animal protein. I'm going to finish off by really describing certain recommendations that Dr. Campbell has for institutions and how we can all change for the better. So to kind of begin, we're discussing the current state of, of nutrition. So chances are you've definitely had a debate with other people about the best diet out there. You kind of compared and contrast, and you've probably certainly uh, tried different diets yourself and found that one works better for you than others. Uh, but whatever diet you really favor, chances are is are that you really witness the stubborn defensiveness and counterattacks that such kind of camps breed. Additionally, numerous ethical, environmental, and religious justifications influence our dietary choices. So uh, much like in our current political landscape, we're at kind of an impasse, and getting past that impasse really requires some shift in the way we consider not only diet, but also the underlying attitudes we have towards health and nutrition. So to give an example of how you know, certain ethical, environmental, and religious justifications influence our dietary choices. Dr. Campbell talks about how he was kind of caught in the crossfire of diet debates on more than one occasion simply by just uh, attending to and presenting the scientific evidence. So here's, here's the example that Dr. Campbell gives. Though Dr. Campbell respects the ethical argument for eat, not eating animals, his issue with animal protein has never really been about animal welfare. Only the evidence as it really pertains to human health. And the various activists have um, <clears throat> really critiqued him for taking that position. So certain advocates of vegan or vegetarian diets have shown that they would rather ignore or deny the evidence obtained by his experiments in the lab, even when that evidence on health happens to align with their larger cause of not harming and killing animals. So what Dr. Campbell is saying is that he's for a vegan diet, he's completely for the health benefits of vegan diet, but he's not really for this ethical principle. Um, he, he, does, he's, he doesn't promote veganism for the ethical reasons. He does it for simply human health. But even he gets critiqued um, you know, whenever he talks because when he's pushing the vegan diet, it's not about animal welfare. So even Dr. Campbell gets attacked for pushing something that really aligns with the values of uh, these animal rights activists. So that's just to kind of give an example of this kind of stubborn defensiveness and these uh, attacks by these um, quote-unquote camps, um, these different kinds of camps that we have. Um, so to move a little forward, I'm just going to be discussing the controversy of this whole food uh, plant-based diet. And it really shouldn't be a controversy and as we incorporate new labels into our panoply of isms, piling atop the already existing 
uh, veganism, vegetarianism, carnivorism, pescatarianism, fruitism, and more. Um, labels, uh, all these kind of labels will create more confusion rather than clarity, which is what we need. And this whole food plant-based diet is yet another kind of label in danger of abuse by certain people. But Dr. Campbell would actually argue that it is actually the most desirable yet. This whole food plant-based diet is really the most desirable compared to all these other isms that we have. And this whole food plant-based diet really threatens to disrupt the most kind of pervasive characteristics of the status quo in nutrition today, which of course is confusion. Like what the heck should I be eating? And in the simplicity of its message and the strength of its supporting evidence, it really offers clarity. So if you kind of go off of Michael Paul in seven words, again, which is eat food, not too much, mostly plants. I mean, that's, that's a basis. I talk about those seven words all the time. It's just a good basis, a good understanding, a good starting point for a lot of these nutrition. But um, with all these different conflicting data, there's so much confusion in the, in the field of, of nutrition and health in general. So um, that's what the whole food plant-based diet is so good at. It's, it really creates clarity. And perhaps this clarity doesn't seem like a big deal, but it really is. As long as the status quo tends towards confusion, as it does now, currently, the pursuit of clarity will be a significant source of hope for the confused consumer. So the whole food plant-based diet, its first concern is not with choice, but with science. So we're not focusing on, on eat this, not that. It's really with focusing on, on science. And nutrition is confusing in great part because so many of the most influential actors and leaders in the discipline are really themselves confused. So their interpretation of the scientific evidence is influenced by you know, blatant corruption of the industry uh, and also personal biases. Uh, though these biases themselves may have developed out of extended um, corporate influence on the public narrative. So we're really seeing these ads and these influences um, to these people, like these people are getting paid by certain companies to promote their products. And that's not always in the, in the best intention. Now, there is one example in the field of nutrition, above all others, that really testifies to this public's confusion, our, suscept our susceptibility to such narratives and the difficulty of change. And that's the example of animal protein. So much as cancer research past and present exemplifies our society's disconnect between malnutrition and disease, the example of animal protein shines a, spite, a spotlight on the confusion in nutrition as we know it and promises kind of tremendous room uh, for growth. So this next section, I'll be discussing the cult of animal protein, but I'm also going to push back at the end of this segment to really um, prove to you that there are certain benefits of meat and we don't need to be excluding animal protein altogether. So to kind of start with the, the cult of animal protein, um, in 1839, researchers discovered that dogs in a lab would actually die if their food was missing a certain vital substance. So this was the first discovery of its kind, and it gave rise to the concept of quote-unquote essential nutrients. So essential nutrients are those nutrients that we must consume to maintain health because our bodies cannot make them. It's so important um, that when it was actually first discovered, um, that substance, protein, it actually comes from the word uh, proteos, meaning of prime importance. 
So protein comes from the Greek word proteos of prime importance. And it kind of goes to show um, when you look at the history of protein. So this man in Germany named Carl von, uh, Carl von Voigt, Voigt, he echoed his sentiment when making recommendations for protein consumption. So uh, Carl von Voigt was this researcher back in the 18, um, you know, 30s, 1840s. And he kind of made this um, influence in protein consumption. So he was tremendously influential in his own right and often described as actually the father of uh, dietetics and nutrition. And he often recommended a diet with large amount of protein. So in his research, he observed that 52 grams per day of protein was enough for good health. But he actually ended up recommending more than twice as much. So 118 grams per day was what he was actually recommending. And when these early nutrition authorities spoke of protein in general, they were really talking about animal protein. So one of Voigt's students, his name was Max Rubner. He again was born in 1854 and died in 1932. And he was famed for his work on energy metabolism. And he actually coined uh, the term calorie. And he claimed that that protein was the quote-unquote interchange of civilization itself. So that's how important he, he thought protein was. And in another case, documents suggest that an English uh, medical advisor in India named Major McKay favored men of, the, of certain tribes over other you know, indigenous people because they consumed the most protein. So from the very beginning, from you know, the 1850s, 1840s, we're really establishing the, the importance of protein. And it's even in the name of prime importance. Now, unfortunately, the field has shown a stubborn inability to kind of move beyond this early enthusiasm, despite a great deal of research showing that uh, that enthusiasm was really excessive, uh, both back then and also now. So the USDA uh, nutrition scientists have continued to beat the drum for these high protein foods, especially animal based foods like meat, dairy and eggs. So right now I'm kind of just going to be discussing the the ways we really assign value to certain foods. So this high quality um, smokescreen, he calls it. So the, the disciples of animal protein often assert that it, it has greater uh, nutritive value than other than like the proteins you get from plants. And this concept of uh, nutritive value is frequently assumed, though scientists have different ways of describing it. So the more common description and likely the way you've heard it yourself is this quote-unquote high quality. So you may have heard animal protein be called this high quality. And from the first decade of after protein's discovery uh, through today, many scientists have sought to uh, develop kind of met objective methods for determining the relative value of different proteins, including both plant proteins and animal proteins. So the earliest and perhaps the most rudimentary of methods to kind of measure the the value is the protein efficiency ratio, or PER. So a food's protein efficiency ratio is found by dividing gain in body mass by protein intake. In other words, words it measures the efficiency of different proteins in promoting body growth. Now, the protein efficiency ratio method focuses on really maximizing growth. And when it comes to human health, However, the flaw of measuring uh, nutritive value in this way is really 
you know, obvious, but it, it assumes that the fastest rate of growth is also the most optimal rate of growth. And we know that's really not true. We know protein can maximize growth the most compared to plant. But when it comes to human health, Dr. Campbell's saying it's not about how fast, it's really more about how optimal we grow. Now, the most widely used measure of protein quality through much of the 20th century was the biological value, or BV. So biological value is used to describe the proportion of nitrogen retained in the body upon consumption of a given protein. So in essence, it is supposed to measure the efficiency of use of various proteins. And it assumes that the nitrogen retained in the body is really being put to good use. So this is the biological value. How much nitrogen from these proteins can we actually retain in the body? Now, I talked about the PER, I talked about biological value, and there's another way we kind of assign value. It's via the amino acid score, or AAS. And this is, again, more recently uh, developed. The amino acid score measures how faithfully the arrangements of amino acids in various food proteins matches the arrangement of amino acids the body, um, you know, the body resembles to use. So, uh, for example, animal-based proteins contain the amounts and proportions of amino acids most similar to ours, whereas plants really kind of defer. Their amino acid sequence, when they make up the protein, really defers from animals, and it's a lot different than ours. As a result, this amino acid score, um, it kind of assumes that animal foods allow for more efficient use. And again, that kind of gives rise to this quote-unquote high quality. Now, uh, individual plant proteins lack one or more of these kind of nine essential amino acids. And that's kind of why they call it this low quality, because they don't really, uh, they don't um, contain all the, um, these essential uh, nine amino acids. So what Dr. Campbell is saying is that we must look at the wider effects food have on human health. We can't just really focus on um, biological value and amino acid scores. So animal protein as food is packaged with other things as well, uh, including questionable ones like cholesterol and saturated fat. Uh, again, this is the point that he's making. Uh, but no one, re- no known health risk at all figures into assessment of uh, protein value. Never mind that along with increased body growth, the accumulation of protein in our bodies may also increase the rate of cancer growth, serum cholesterol, and cardiovascular uh, disease risk. So too much protein accumulation, cancer, uh, too much cholesterol, and uh, increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Now, in Dr. Campbell's own research um, back in the 1970s and 1980s on certain experiments in rats, he kind of discussed in greater depth Um, in this book and also the China study, how he repeatedly established the ability of higher consumption of milk-based protein like casein to dramatically increase the growth hormone uh, associated with increased cancer development. And in contrast, high levels of uh, low-quality wheat protein had the opposite effect. So because these low-quality wheat proteins were deficient in one of the amino acids called lysine, the wheat protein actually prevented cancer development So in other words, the animal-based protein increased cancer growth while the plant-based protein in its original form did not because it lacked, again, that amino acid lysine. 
So now besides the high quality label, there are several examples among health authorities of how language continues to really hold us back. So for example, consider the International Agency for Research on Cancer of the United Nations uh, World Health Organization. And in 2015, they labeled processed meat as carcinogenic and red meat as probably carcinogenic. Now, Dr. Campbell, having lectured twice at this IARC, he can assure you that these scientists are reluctant to believe that nutrition might play any role whatsoever in cancer causation. Their official purpose is to pass judgment on the possible uh, carcinogens and chemicals in food and not really the the food itself. So that's just kind of one example of, um, you know, where things go awry. And in in Kind of give to another example, in 2017, uh, a 2017 paper on red meat intake and chronic kidney disease, or CKD, the abstract's first sentence states that red meat is an important dietary source of high biological value of protein. But it also goes on to suggest that limiting the intake of red meat in, in patients with CKD may slow the progression of kidney disease. It may, may be a good strategy to reduce cardiovascular. So all that in the same abstract. So do you understand this confusion? It's saying that red meat intake uh, and CKD um, are are correlated. Um, But there's also this kind of like paradox going on. And again, Dr. Campbell asks, why why do these scientists continue to cling on to kind of outdated terminology like higher biological value? Now, surely the proteins with the highest biological value would be those that come from food that prevent and reverse kidney disease. But obviously, that's not the case. And to kind of finish off, the impact of our misused and selective language is really profound. And we often justify our bad nutritional habits with positive concepts like high nitrogen retention, efficiency of use, uh, rate of body growth, efficiency of production. So to to kind of summarize myself, um, we're kind of gauging our our value on the wrong things this is the point that dr campbell is trying to make we're basing our value on how much nitrogen retention we have how fast our body growth uh, occurs and not really more on focusing on you know the actual quality i guess you would say the actual quality of the protein and if that protein is associated with certain things like ckd like cancer like uh, cardiovascular disease etc um, so I'm going to be discussing Dr. Campbell's actual run-in with animal protein. His backstory is not what you would think. So as a, as a vegan, like activist and, uh, the author of the China study and, you know, one of the, the market leaders in, in veganism, you would think that his whole background was based off of, uh, of, you know, plants and all that. But Dr. Campbell actually grew up on a dairy farm where his family produced their own meat their own milk, their own eggs, and he actually hunted, fished, and trapped whenever he had time. And for these reasons, he understood the love affair with animal-based protein better than most scientists ever could. Now later, when he went to Cornell and he did his doctorate research, which focused on um, the production of animal-based protein, he he was really like uh, biased, uh, you know, towards animal protein. And then it wasn't until later when he was starting to do research where he really found out, okay, maybe this protein is kind of overrated. We don't really need as much as, as, um, as 
recommended. Um, so while testing um, this thing called aflatoxin, so aflatoxin is this carcinogen found in peanuts. It's been associated with uh, liver cancer. While testing AF contaminated peanuts in the Philippines and also back home, Dr. Campbell kind of became aware of two phenomena going on. So the first one is kind of this seeming association between young Filipino children suffering from liver cancer and also the consumption of animal protein. And the research results of a group in India testing this relationship among aflatoxin, liver cancer, uh, and animal protein, he kind of saw this evidence of the surprising role animal protein in developing liver cancer. So he particularly wondered whether cancer growth was initiated by aflatoxin might be accelerated by animal protein. And later in his lab, he kind of discovered that animal protein dramatically increased uh, experimental cancer growth, cancer growth. And it also uncovered evidence of at least 10 biological mechanisms by which the animal protein effect um, could be explained, both in the initiation of cancer and also the uh, promotion of cancer. Uh, in parallel, Dr. Campbell also discovered a wide range of international correlational studies that showed a linear correlation of animal protein um, with you know, cardiovascular disease and other, and other kind of chronic diseases. So at, at this point, I was getting kind of like, you know, fed up because anytime I read a book about veganism, whether it's from Dr. Campbell or Dr. Michael Greger, they never explain the, the positive benefits of eating meat. They never even, you know, mention it at all in their book. Um, and they also do a lot of cherry picking. So he, Dr. Campbell kind of goes on to cherry pick certain studies. Uh, for example, this is one study he has in his book. Um, in an experiment involving Yale freshmen in the reserve office training corps program, this researcher named Russell uh, uh, Chittenden conducted a set of 15 physical strength and endurance tests both before and after several months of a diet of less than 50 grams of, of uh, protein per day. Um, and their results included different averages and as you can see in this chart he has, the students uh, did not really wilt away as a result of low protein. Instead, each and every one showed significant improvement in their scores. And here's another cherry pick study. In a second study, uh, the same researcher, uh, Chittenden, enrolled already fit athletes who began um, you know, the similar protocol. And almost anyone who had ever exercised knows that the most significant gains often occurred towards the beginning of a training uh, regimen. But on this, uh, this guy's diet, this Chittenden's diet of low animal protein, even experienced athletes saw significant improvement in their scores. In other words, high performance does not require a high protein diet. On the contrary, a low protein diet can improve performance regardless of baseline fitness. So at this point, uh, I kind of call BS. And if you want to debate me, feel free to send me a message on Instagram. But um, just looking at the data, it doesn't make sense to me how higher performance is better with low protein. Uh, it just doesn't really make sense. I try to find common ground. Um, but at this point, I'm just going to be discussing, uh, why you should eat meat. Now I'm not talking about meat every day. I'm talking about, you know, meat a few times a week, um, just for the myriad of health benefits. And, you can go ahead and use these whenever you're 
you know, arguing about animal protein and uh, vegan versus uh, carnivore versus um, a mix of both. So here's a list of reasons why I think it's important to eat protein, uh, specifically animal protein, ground beef, uh, steak, um, eggs, uh, even, you know, salmon as well, these different. So anytime you're starting with this argument with a, a vegan Always start with the B12 argument. Now, B12 is uh, one of the vitamins that can only be found in animal protein. So it's kind of hard for them to really debate you on that, on that fact. Yes, B12 can be injected and, and you know, there's huge storages in your liver. Um, you know, you can always take you know, supplements as well, but uh, B12 can only be found in animal protein. So you can always start with that argument. Now, animal protein is also high in carnitine. So carnitine is this kind of amino acid that transports fats um, into mitochondria for burning. So it's, it's involved in fatty acid oxidation. Uh, it helps us actually burn fat. So that's the importance of carnitine. Again, you find a lot of this in meat. Um, meat is also very high in creatine. So creatine is kind of the one supplement that everyone should be taking. Uh, I take five grams a day. I think most people should take creatine just for its, you know, it, extreme health benefits. It's, it's involved in recycling of ATP, giving us more energy to really improve our exercise performance, assist in, you know, muscle mass, muscle growth. Um, you know, creatine, the importance of creatine cannot be, cannot be overstated. Animal protein is also high in heme iron. So this is kind of to make the hemoglobin, allowing for more like oxygen t- transfer to our different tissues. Animal protein is high in omega-3s, so the EPA and DHA that are really anti-inflammatory, anti-platelet. They improve endothelial function, increase uh, nitric oxide uh, synthesis. So animal proteins are high in omega-3s. More meat means you're eating less carbohydrates. So meat is very satiating, unlike your starches. So when you're eating more meat, you're eating less of other foods that may uh, you know, spike insulin a lot more. So eating more meat is better for weight loss. It, it doesn't really spike insulin and it, it allows for, you know, better glucose control. We know we have a huge problem and epidemic of diabetes and prediabetes. So if people ate less carbohydrates, they're subsequently going to be eating more meat and be more satiated as well. So they're going to lose weight. They're not going to spike your insulin, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, one more thing is the choline. So choline is found in meat there's a high, it's a precursor to acetylcholine, which is important for, you know, learning, memory, other cognitive functions. It's important for, um, you know, binding to receptors at the neuro, uh, neuromuscular junction to allow for muscle contraction. So my point is, there are so many benefits of eating meat, and you would be kind of, um, you, you would really miss out if you're, if you're just consuming solely plant-based uh, protein. So you're not getting that B12, you're not getting uh, certain other things like carnitine, creatine, uh, important cholesterol needed for the synthesis of hormones like testosterone, you're not getting your omega-3s. So those are just some points you can make when you're debating your friend about why, you know, you should incorporate some sort of meat. Now, yes, I understand Dr. Campbell's point. Uh, There's this kind of correlation between meat consumption and cancer. And, you know, this TMAO is also like an independent risk factor uh, for cardiovascular disease. So I limit my protein intake. But again, it's not I'm not solely excluding it from my diet. 
so I'm going to get off my, my soapbox and uh, move forward because, um, you know, I really don't like debating uh, this, eat this, not that kind of thing. And everyone's, everyone's gut microbiome is different and everyone responds differently. So um, you do what's best for you. Uh, either way, I'm going to move on to another section in the book. And it's towards the very end. It's called Recommendations. So Dr. Campbell makes recommendations for uh, certain institutions. So not really uh, personal recommendations, but more just for, you know, how can we change the system? And he does make some valid points here. That's why I wanted to bring it up. Um, The number one recommendation he makes is always question the role of institutions. So all institutions that bear power should be subject to the diligence and dissidence of those whom that power affects, including both professionals and laypeople. It doesn't matter whether the institution operates publicly or privately, whether or not it entangles in our political system, uh, whether it, um, you know, it's for nonprofit charity or to feed ch- children or to educate students. Uh, whenever there is power imbalance between an institution and the people, it affects... Um, uh, the people it affects, that institution's role must be justified. So people must benefit from the imbalance. However, the people may define and concur on you know what that benefit is. In other words, always question the role of institutions. Um, another recommendation that he has for for institutions is to uh, you know protect and restore academic freedom. So he kind of goes into detail about that. He also talks about uh, rescuing science from technology and industry. And the last uh, really good point that he makes here that I want to kind of emphasize is um, this healing protocol meant to be informed by science as science. So what does he mean by healing nutrition? So the first point is you, we want to construct on this kind of nutritional science education program for all accredited uh, medical school curricula. Uh, medical institutions that fail to offer adequate training in nutrition should not receive government support. Adequate training is best obtained both by the classroom instructed and by the, the practicum. Um, so he says perhaps using the whole food plant-based diet for a period of at least two weeks and monitoring results in a abbreviated lab assignment. So that's one um, kind of recommendation recommendation he has. And coming from uh, medical school, just recently graduated, I can't agree with this more. Uh, we get very little new training in nutrition. And a lot of the stuff I learned, I had to read in books. I had to research, you know, I had to look up on YouTube, look up on Google. Um, true nutrition, because we were not being taught that in our medical school. And one quote by Dr. Greger that I always remember him saying in his How Not to Diet book is that, uh, having an MD behind your name tells the public that you've had almost zero training in nutrition. So I, I again, I couldn't agree with that more. We need to institute uh, a better kind of curriculum in in the in medical schools and in undergraduate uh, programs to help push uh, you know evidence based medicine um, and just you know teach doctors, teach PAs, teach nurses uh, the importance of nutrition. And this hopefully can overlap with, uh, you know, these public figures talking to patients in the clinic or patients in the hospital about their nutrition. Because, you know, 
it's 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 so blatant that this epidemic of um you know diabetes cancer alzheimer's cardiovascular disease is really rooted in diet nutrition exercise these these kind of foundations here so another recommendation he has is the develop um to develop reimbursement procedures for PCPs who apply this education nutrition again i couldn't agree with that more uh another recommendation establish a new NIH um National Institute of Nutrition or NIN i guess you would say um to join the current 27 NIH institutions transform food subsidy programs to encourage food production that aligns with um you know reliable nutritional evidence and consumer protection and you know last but not least create a food and nutrition advisory council that really truly serves the interests of the consumer and that is financed by an endowment trust fund beyond the influence of like corporate financial in- interest um so that that's going to be almost impossible but you know i'm totally with him for these uh, you know healing protocols um for really educating programs and giving pcps incentives you know reimbursements for their application of education and nutrition i am completely for that um so i'm going to end the podcast here um this is the only episode i'm going to do on this book again it was it was very dry i couldn't uh i thought those passages were interesting that's why i covered it but i i don't want to cover the whole book so i'm just going to end here i hope you enjoyed something i hope this kind of opened your mind and really gave you more clarity than confusion um i guess another tip or recommendation i would have myself is just to do your own research um try different try different uh you know different ways of eating different you know modalities different diets yourself see what works best for you um that's all i would have to say uh, well thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed and i uh, hope you tune in next time for another book that i'll be covering